And welcome back to Mixed Media Live. We're back for another weekly live stream, another weekly live show. And I'm super excited uh, for this one. We're going to be talking about some spicy topics, some hot takes. Uh, We are half trying a new format. Uh, Our interview fell through this week, but hopefully next week we'll have the full format in. If you like any part of it, please let us know. I love our podcast viewers out there. You guys are eating up the episodes lately. So shout out to our audio only people. Hopefully by next week, if, uh, if I get enough time to get on it, we will also be live streaming audio only, not on Podbean. Podbean basically doesn't work. So Podbean, you got to fix that. Um, <laughs> but on uh, Clubhouse, I've been uh, doing some research, looking into Clubhouse, and we, I, think, I think it would be pretty hassle-less overall to also get on Clubhouse. So I'm kind of excited for that. I didn't um, know there was Clubhouse streaming or for podcasts. I thought it was like more like chat rooms. It is technically chat rooms, but I would route the audio essentially to the chat room and uh, people, I mean, we could even like do cool things where we, we pull people's voices in live, which that I'm that not promising like for next. Headache. Yeah, that, that I'm not promising for next week, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, you could spontaneously uh, have a comment to make, raise your hand in clubhouse and I can uh, maybe pull you into the stream very magically, but that is not something I'm going to promise right now. So what's this new format? So what are we going to do? So the way we're going to do this is actually first for those of you who don't know the podcast, Mixed Media is a weekly live streamed uh, podcast that we upload our episodes to our podcasting platforms and all of our other platforms every week. So we'll split this up into three segments and we'll post the final podcast there, but you can interact with us live. And what we do is we talk about art in all of its capacities. Uh, We have our particular interests that you can see underneath uh, our names on the screen there. Um, And we'll introduce ourselves in a moment, but we like talking about our philosophy, business of art stuff, the actual art itself, reviewing things, reviewing your things, arguing with with uh, the internet a lot, and our spicy hot takes and all all, all that kind of oh, stuff. Okay. So my name is Irving, Irving Nestor. I'm a film and media person. I love media entrepreneurship. I own a company called Ariella. Uh, you can check out my website, ariella.co. Don't have the hat on today, but I've got the shirt, which you can barely see. Uh, and uh, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. So uh, you can check out my merch on uh, my website. Uh, yeah, I'm Nathan. I'm a game developer and 3D modeler. Um, yeah, <laughs> working on a couple of games. Sweet. How many games are you working on <laughs> simultaneously uh, at this point? <laughs> it varies per time, but you know, I always have a consistent one. I, you know, it's, it varies for, per time, but like I always have one that I'm consistently working on that'll hopefully, you know be the one if you know what i'm saying yeah um it's just like it's hard man <laughs> it's hard you know i'm uh i am not hey welcome back <laughs> i'm realizing that i'm not a level designer it's like i like, actually just don't like it either you know what i'm saying like, ben you're just in time to introduce yourself though okay um well i i'm ben costello i'm a uh, flute player flutist flautist if you want to Whatever you want to call that, and a media composer, enjoying enjoying the uh, the trials of um, live streaming a podcast. <laughs> clearly, clearly. <laughs> How was your uh, first week of uh, class? Both of you, actually. Um, not you know, n- not bad. Uh, I would say 
it's my introduction to virtual schooling, which I don't like. Mm. It's like, I don't even feel like I'm really doing anything. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of sitting in my room all day. Yeah. It, are your lectures like on Zoom or something like that? And then you just tune into them? Yeah. The only thing I have in person is uh, like playing an, an ensemble and we're playing like outside, but we haven't met yet. So. Interesting. Interesting. How about you, Nathan? How was your uh, first week of school? Well, that's been interesting. Mine's also been online, but not because it was supposed to be, but because there was like massive flooding due to uh, the big storm that just passed. So, uh, yeah, all the classes were canceled and put online. But uh, before that, I got to actually you know, go out and do things. So that was interesting. I used the, there's an eSports center at my uh, school, oh. which is interesting. Yeah, it's like a whole like room of computers. And you can just play whatever you want. And I got to take the bus because my campus is so large, which is a very strange concept. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I went all around um, to all the different campuses. That's interesting. Uh, and yeah, it's kind of weird being like responsible for myself. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> like I was sitting in my dorm one time. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I just kind of sat there I was like, wait a minute, I have to get the food myself, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, yeah, that was interesting. But uh, I guess somewhat fulfilling, right? It's like, oh, hooray, I'm like an uh, independent person. I got food for myself, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, you'll you'll grow into it, and uh, it'll, it'll be awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess uh, without further ado, uh, we'll just uh, hop into it. Um, as you guys trickle in, like I said... Feel free to chat to uh, interact with us as we speak about our topics. We love interaction. So if you have a comment, you want to contradict what we're saying or whatever uh, interesting thing to say, or you just want to say hello, just uh, hit us up in the chat and we're listening and we'll uh, incorporate you into the podcast. Um, Yeah. So uh, Ben will start us off today. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Soviet music as kind of a, a political football being punted around in America. And, uh, you know, this is a topic that, like, if you're, like, a friend of mine in my family, you've probably heard me talk about way too many times. Um, But I haven't talked about it on this show yet. I thought it could be a good time to do that. I I kind of, it came into my mind because I was reading uh, an article for one of my classes this week by Alex Ross. And I'll, I'm going to start with Alex Ro- who Alex Ross uh, is in a second. Um, but I can't stand Alex Ross. I know it's an un- it's a really unpopular opinion in the, in the musical world. So, but I'll, I'll get to that. But that kind of, the article was from a portion of his book, which is not the what I'm going to talk about, but is the introduction to his book. But that just reminds me of some of the, this stuff that I, I don't like. So, yeah, we've, we've talked uh, in a previous episode about um, art as propaganda. And this is kind of related, but instead of looking at, um, you know, I think in that episode, we were more, more, more looking at art that was kind of created for a particular purpose and whether that's propaganda or not. Um, and this is kind of looking at from the opposite and music that was kind of written for itself, but which has sort of been thrown around 
as propaganda after uh-huh. the fact. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So, like I said, I find that Russian music, particularly Soviet music, is kind of, as I said, a, a, a political uses a political football. Every side, you know, uses it for what they want, and then when they're done, they'll, they'll punt it off to somebody else, and they'll kick it around too. Okay, there's no not really any middle ground. Both sides are using it, and without really any any respect for 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 the truth of what Soviet music, what's going, what happened in the Soviet musical world, Soviet world in general, you know that that, that bothers me on on a lot of levels because I think it does a disservice to the music, and it does does a disservice to our audiences, and it does a disservice to music students. Um, and I, I say that as you know, going restarting uh, restarting music school. So uh, I'm I'm again thrust into the Russian musical narrative, such as it is presented. And you'd mm. think that some of these uh, Cold War uh, political issues kind of died after the uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, no. but they're quite alive and well and. You know, if anything, what what we can see, what we see in music, I think, is reflected still in our, our the way we think about Russia in general, not just in terms of the arts. All right, so I mentioned Alex Ross, so I'm going to start with him as kind of a prelude. I'm going to look at kind of three three political uses of uh, Russian music. Two of them are going to be about Shostakovich, and one of them is going to be about uh, Popov. And he's a much lesser known composer. And we're going to start with him and Alex Ross because it's kind of our, our, our little like prelude to the little more complicated issue. So Alex Ross is a writer. He is the music critic for The New Yorker. So very, you know, kind of influential music writer in kind of more uh, intellectual discourse, I'd say. Mm. And he's written a couple of things, but his most significant book came out a few years ago. It's called The Rest is Noise, The History of Music in the 20th Century, uh, which I own. And we had to read the introduction to that in one of my classes this week and talk about it. Okay, so overall, you know, it's an okay book, um, but Alex Ross has a very political bent in his book. So he wants not so much like a left and right sort of thing, but he he his bias is very much he wants to present 20th century music, even if it's avant-garde, as being good and worthy of you listening to it. And to do that, he tries to paint a narrative, um, which tries to paint a whole bunch of narratives about you know personal stories about why the music is interesting or not interesting. And one of his big themes is that a lot of his music is interesting because of the political circumstances that it was created in or or just general historic circumstances. So one of his big cases is, of course, Shostakovich. Like I said, well, I'm going to get to him in a second, but what irritates me most about what he says about Shostakovich is actually what he says about this other composer who is a contemporary of Shostakovich, uh, Popov. And Popov was the uh, same same class as Shostakovich at the Petrograd and then later Leningrad Conservatory. And Popov studied with 
Sirbachov, who is the teacher that Shostakovich wanted to study with. Shostakovich was, you know, a great admirer of this kind of forgotten composer. But when he got to the conservatory, they assigned him to Steinberg, and Shostakovich hated Steinberg. So Popov is kind of, from the beginning of his career, kind of linked to Shostakovich, same age, uh, same year, but studying different teachers at the conservatory. Um, and, you know, beginning their careers at the same time. And both of them write uh, very interesting first symphonies. Uh, Shostakovich is maybe a little bit more tonally traditional than Popov's, but it's still pretty, uh, pretty kind of a wacky first symphony, kind of a really like grotesque kind of piece. Okay. And Popov's first symphony is a lot more avant-garde, and his teacher, uh, Sturbachov, was a little bit more avant-garde uh, of a uh, composer anyway, which is part of why Shostakovich wanted to study with him instead of the kind of traditional Steinberg. So Popov's is a little bit more adventurous um, harmonically, not quite atonal, but it's kind of like on the edge of, you know, what was avant-garde in, in the late 1920s. Popov did a lot of other things, too. You know, he wrote some really significant film scores. Um, but at the same time, they both experienced uh, repression under the during the Great Terror in you know, about 1936 to 1939, approximately. Ross, in his narrative, tells us that after that, Pope, he says that Popov's first symphony is a you know, masterpiece of 20th century music. And that after that, after the repression, um, he becomes an alcoholic and could never write anything of significance again. Whereas he says that Shostakovich, you know, perseveres through uh, this repression and, and deadly, deadly time in uh, Russian history and emerges as a stronger composer on the other side. So that's important to Popov for his kind of giving us his narrative of, you know, look how, how terrible repression is, but how special Shostakovich's music is because Shostakovich had enough personal strength to, you know, persevere through like the greatest, maybe the greatest tragedy of uh, the Soviet, Soviet, Soviet era. Really random fun fact for uh, you guys uh, out there. But if you look up Shostakovich, he kind of looks like Ben just a little bit. Most people say he looks like Harry Potter. Oh, oh yeah. interesting. I can see that <laughs> yeah, too. Like a young, a young Shostakovich looks like Harry Potter. Yeah. So that's part of his narrative, right? That, that Popov's music becomes irrelevant. He had been like this, you know, promising uh, great model for the 20th century, and he, he fails. Shostakovich writes great music, but it's more conservative after that. Okay, so I take issue with that because how many people in America have ever listened to Popov? I have not. You know what? I'll be honest. It's probably, you can probably count them on your fingers, okay? <laughs> it's a different story in Russia. So Alex Ross may have listened to some of these pieces. Alex Ross, him, I, I don't know that. I'm going to assume he, he he's not just making up that he he thinks these pieces are are bad. But the the average list reader of this book has not ever heard of Popov before. And when you read that, you, you're going to go into anything that you listen to by Popov with that coloring your opinion. That's just, to me, that's, 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 he's using Popov as 
kind of his political tool to advance his own narrative that, you know, Stalin was a brutal dictator, which, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, you had to be like a special person to persevere through that and to create great art. I mean, look, I, I think Popov's later works are, are better than his, his first symphony. They're more traditional, yes, but I think they're, they're really exa great examples of the, the Russian tradition in the 20, later, you know, mid 20th century. What, you know, how, how could like the music of Rimsky-Korsakov and Tchaikovsky evolve, but still stay within that kind of mold? So I really like Popov's second symphony, fifth symphony, sixth symphony, really great pieces, in my opinion. And, and does Ross explain why he thinks these are bad? No, he just tells us that the Popov never wrote anything good again. Okay, so that's sort of a brief prelude to, um, you know, Soviet music being uh, used for one's political agenda without really regarding the music itself. And you can feel free to disagree with me. If you got, you know, anyone who's listening to this, go listen to Popov and you can say that his music is bad and his first symphony is, is better. That's fine if you feel that way. To me, even if you even if you think that Popov's later music is worse, it's just it, it he's not a political tool to be like, well, you know, look what happened because of these political consequences. He, he it must you know he became an alcoholic. I don't know where I got that information from, but I'm gonna throw that out there and look. Of course, it affected his, how bad his music is. It's like is that strategy called like poisoning the well or something like that? There's like a name for that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, maybe the, the the bigger case is is Shostak of this is Shostakovich, and so I briefly kind of mentioned who he. Well, I, I kind of introduced him there a little bit. Uh, Shostakovich is my favorite composer. Probably the most impactful composer, uh, you know, for for me. Um, and he, in some ways is probably the maybe the most popular 20th century classical composer okay but well it's it's a quite interesting story of how he he kind of achieved his current reputation in america and i want to want to kind of go through that pretty you know not 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 dwell too long on it but i want to keep this short we could probably talk about this for for Days. So Shostakovich, you know, was born in uh, 1906, died in 1975. He's a 11-year-old kid at the beginning of the of Russian communism, at the you know Bolshevik re revolution. Dies towards the end of of the Soviet era, but not before it, you know he's, it's still around when he, when he died. So he kind of lives through you know a uh, pretty significant change. And he's throughout basically the entirety of his career hailed as the great Russian composer, both internationally and and at home. Kind of, you know, he's he's as, as a as a teenager kind of preordained uh, to carry on the legacy of of you know Tchaikovsky and all the other great Russian composers. His music is very uh, it changes quite a bit over his career. Uh, maybe not in the most obvious ways. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use so his great friend and the guy who conducted the premieres of most of his pieces, Ravinsky. Uh, he calls him uh, in, in an interview he gave after Shostakovich's 
or I guess sadly before Shostakovich died, uh, he calls them Estini uh, Peace. Okay, so he's, so he basically says uh, that he he's um, a a chronicler of of his own life and and the reality of life in in the Soviet Union. Okay, so that's that's what Mervinsky calls him. So Shostakovich, you know, so he starts off his career, like I said, hailed on in Russia and abroad as the great Russian composer, even from the time he's, he's a teenager. Um, but things kind of change as attitudes towards communism in America and in the West generally shift. And in particular, every time you get to uh, World War II, he's seen as being just writing propaganda and his music is devoid of any value. Mm. This is really this is reinforced by a very important figure, kind of hidden figure in in American musical history, a guy named uh, Nikolai, or as he went by in, in America, Nicholas Nabokov, who is I think the uh, nephew of, of the great writer. So he he's a significant figure because he is the music advisor to the CIA's Congress for Cultural Freedom. Okay, so the CIA had this set up this uh, in secret thing called the uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom, which their job was to spread artistic free ideas to Russia in order to uh, subvert the hold of of communism. Scary. And he's he's their musical advisor. He's also the musical advisor and the. Uh, uh, to the JFK's uh, inner circle, so he had a direct impact so on two, yeah two two speeches that JFK gave uh, on artistic freedom, contrasting artistic freedom in Soviet Union and America. Okay, so he he's a, he's a very influential figure who's kind of in the shadows. As and, such people uh, dwell. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I know the first time that I, that I you know, heard about the CIA having this kind of involvement in, you know, spreading, I mean, essentially spreading our American artistic propaganda to Russia. I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, growing up, you think like the KGB does kind of sketchy stuff, but like, and, but, you know, we're doing the reverse kind of thing too. You know, we're literally like printing, um, uh, copies of Dr. Zhivago and bringing them into Russia and distributing them on the street, things like that. No, Ben, the CIA is is the is the good altruistic. Uh, just they just assassinate people and influence societies, and they they would never do anything terrible to anyone, of course. So this this Congress for, for cultural freedom. They they really wanted to bring like the most avant-garde things they could to Russia, and the, the hope that this would like make artists be more avant-garde and subvert Soviet regime. Okay, so a, again, just to be clear, like I'm quite quite against the Soviet regime. I want, I want to be really really clear about that. I'm not a, I'm not a like you know one of these people. You can see people walking around in Russia with their shirts that said like, well. At least Stalin defeated Hitler. Oh, that's pretty nuts. Kind of a, 
yeah, there's kind of a resurgence of respect and, and love for Stalin in, in Russia. So I'm not one of the, I'm definitely not one of the, but, but it's interesting that these sort of things, these cultural things occurred. Okay, so Nicholas Nabokov uh, met Shostakovich in 1949 at the uh, world, uh, like I think it's the, the, the world uh, summit for Peace or something like that. I don't remember the exact title. Uh, this is a, a meeting in uh, in New York, and at this point, Shostakovich has faced his second um, official denunciation, uh, but under this guidance of the cultural, basically the cult, head of minister, minister of culture, uh, Zhdanov, who does not like a lot of composers, including Shostakovich, and so Shostakovich has to. Uh, you know, formally apologize for his his music and renounce all the ideas that were contained within them uh, until Zhdanov and uh, Stalin died a few year few years later, and that ban was, was lifted. So this is that happened in 1948, and they sent him in 1949 to the United States as their representative, one of the representatives at this at this international gathering. First, he he asks Shostakovich uh, from the crowd, you know, when they're giving questions uh, to, to the different speakers, he says, he asks him po uh, point blank, do you regret denouncing your works? Which is a terrible question to ask someone who is, you know, sent there by the government and uh, is not free to answer as, as, he, as he would, okay? Uh, so, of course, Shostakovich says, no, I don't regret it. Um, and this really helps fuel the narrative of Shostakovich just being a, a slave to the, the government. Nabokov writes this article where he, he basically decide, you know, he describes Shostakovich. He says he's not a free man, but an obedient tool of his government. And this has enormous impact on the American reception of Shostakovich. So that's kind of kind of narrative number one about Shostakovich. And this, you know, is is feeds into, of course, the idea that communism is our enemy, especially, you know, 1949. This is when that the Cold War is really beginning and heating up. Uh, we've just, you know, we've defeated Hitler, and now the next enemy is our former, the, our former ally by necessity, Russia. So that, so that feeds into that political narrative that uh, these poor artists like Shostakovich, they can't write anything of value because they're slaves, obedient, uh, obedient tools to their government. There's a counter movement to this. And this begins a bit, well, there are probably other people who help reevaluate this, but the, the main person who helps bring about reevaluation of Shostakovich's music in America is Leonard Bernstein. Hmm. And so in, I want to say, 57, but it may have been 1959, he leads the New York Philharmonic on a tour of Russia. And he plays Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony with Shostakovich in the audience. And, you know, he meets Shostakovich. Shostakovich thanks him for, you know, it's great that, um, you know, at this point, knowing how relations are between our countries, that an American orchestra is going to play my music. Um, so then Leonard Bernstein comes back, and he 
kind of decides he's going to spread the reverse political gospel on Shostakovich, in which Shostakovich is persecuted, but his music is really great. And here's the key, okay? It's really great, not just because like it's immediately broadly popular stuff, but here's how I can make you know fit this in with our how much we hate Russia here in the Cold War. It's got all these secret messages in it. And this is alive and well today. Go to a music school, look in your music history curriculum that all your future musicians are 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 getting. Go to a program. Read, you know, the, the, something was a, a concert that, well, not, don't go to a concert these days because there probably aren't many in-person concerts now, but if you listen to a concert that has Shostakovich's music on it, read the program notes or just look at the titles of these things. Like a couple, maybe three years ago, I, you know, uh, there's a um, program with Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra did, um, with Marin Alsop conducting it, who was... Uh, Leonard Bernstein's last student. Mm. She's carried on his torch. The title of that was, I think, I may be paraphrasing slightly, but I believe it was called Hidden Codes or Hidden Messages, Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. And she gave mm. a you know, pre-concert talk about decoding. And she definitely used the word decoding. All the, the hidden things in Shostakovich's symphonies, as if there's a hidden code in these in the music okay and then bernstein you know tries to prove this by he, he takes the end of shostakovich's fifth symphony and he plays it really fast and he says it's supposed to be played really fast because it, it basically it's like 32 straight measures of the orchestra playing the note a then the brass playing this melody on top of it and it sounds it's kind of a triumphant ending uh, but Bernstein says, well, it, it, you know, like it's so artificially fast, it just sounds really hollow. And what it is is this is the sound of a man rejoicing, but only rejoicing because he's being beaten on the head with a stick being told to rejoice. Well, maybe you feel that way about the music, but if we are going to look at the music itself, why don't we look at how the music is actually played by Mravinsky, the guy who like I mentioned him earlier, he's Shostakovich's close friend, the person who conducted the premiere of this work, which uh, came out during the Great Terror, you know, conducted it rest of his life, and actually was kind of in the room helping, you know, working on a lot of the details as Shostakovich composed this piece. Okay, so Mravinsky plays this more than twice as slow as Leonard Bernstein. In fact, when Leonard Bernstein played this piece in Russia, played with that fast ending, of course, Shostakovich, you know, thanked him for playing it. Then the next day after Bernstein left, he wrote, writes in the press, there's a terrible rendition of my symphony. The end is, you know, ridiculously fast. It's not what it's supposed to be. Ooh, rip. So even if you buy that, you know, wow, that it's so fast, it sounds so artificial. Well, that is not what the piece sounds like, Okay. And this is a significant piece. I mean, when this piece came out, the premiere of this, it resonated with people regardless of this. Okay, people widely reported that almost the entire audience was in tears at the premiere of this piece. Okay, mm. so it's not like he needed some kind of hidden political message, but 
if you want to look in your, you know, the music textbooks that your young future performers are, are getting as they're being educated on Shostakovich before they go and perform him for you, you're, they're being told, I can t test this firsthand, Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony is him giving this middle, the middle finger to Stalin. Literally, that is a quote that every music student gets. Okay, look, whatever you feel about Russian communism and Stalin, whatever Shostakovich felt, which we do know, okay, and that's conveniently ignored, but however, however he felt or you feel, okay, the music does not explicitly do that, okay? It's, it's a piece of music. He's not making some kind of hidden political statement in it. The other example of a hidden political statement that we get is from towards the end of Shostakovich's life, a writer, Volkov, decides he is going to interview Shostakovich and then write down all of these things, you know, all of Shostakovich's uh, recollections on, on, on his life in music. Volkov is a pretty discredited person. He did the same thing with this Russian poet Brodsky uh, towards the end of Brodsky's life, but he made the mistake of publishing it before, right before Brodsky died. And Brodsky reads this and says, I didn't say any of those things. Dang, that's pretty crazy. Someone's willing to lie about something while he was alive. <laughs> right, so he waited, luckily with Shostakovich, he waited until after Shostakovich died. But this book called Testimony is the single most important book in Shostakovich literature even though it is widely discredited for many reasons. I mean, there, you can take a course on how it is inaccurate. And in this, he says, Shostakovich allegedly says that well, the, the second movement of my 10th symphony is a portrait of Stalin. That is kind of the narrative. Now, this book, Testimony, launches the Shostakovich Wars because Volkov is also kind of like Bernstein trying to you know, fight back against this narrative that Shostakovich is a, 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 a quote, obedient tool of the government. And so he wants to say that not only, you know, it was uh, Shostakovich's music, like, secretly, does that have secret anti, you know, Stalinist messages, but, I mean, Shostakovich is really a, a, a truly hidden communist dissident. He doesn't like communism. And he's, you know, really, he's fighting the system from with, he was fighting the system from within. That is sort of the, the general debate that anyone, you know, who wants to go past the surface level of a dominant narrative now, which is that Shostakovich had all these secret messages in his music. The next level is the Shostakovich Wars. Literally, it's the name of a, a scholarly debate. Uh, ignited by ignited by Volkov, which is basically asking how how is Shostakovich was was he really a dissident? You know what what are these messages that he has in his music? How did he really feel about these things? Again, he's kind of being thrown around by by both sides. He's he's either you know thrown around as as an example of look how terrible communism is and, and trying to be an artist under communism is or wow, he really hates communism and he's a great kind of champion of American values. And that's why we should love his music. The thing is that 
you know, neither of these narratives are are really true. If you if you if you dig into Shostakovich's life, and and you can, the answer is is pretty clearly that Shostakovich was a big supporter of the idea of communism, which makes sense. A lot of people in the Soviet Union were supporters of the idea of communism. Was he a fan of Stalin and Stalin and you know and others' implementation of it? No. I think that's pretty obvious. Okay, but that doesn't fit in with either narrative. Mm. So we're doing a disservice to the music and the composer and to history by kind of simplifying these things with Cold War or anti-Cold War attitudes. Or I guess they're all, I mean, they're both Cold War attitudes. They're kind of different sides of a Cold War attitude. Um, and, and, you know, to me, it also, it just, this sort of stuff gets to the, the, um, the kind of essence of like what is music about mm. does a composer even if he wanted to would a, a composer say you know wow this is a portrait of a political figure if they weren't asked to write that and i think the answer is no generally mm. i think most music at least in my opinion there are obviously counter examples to this but you know most music kind of arises from uh, just it arises from circumstances of your life, but you can't express how it does. Um, ironically, Leonard Bernstein's kind of mentor and, and friend, Aaron Copeland, um, in the beginning of, I, I can't think of the name of his book off the top of my head, but he says basically, um, does music have meaning? And Copeland says, yes. And he says, but can you express it in, in any number of words? And the answer is no. You can't put words to what it means. And a composer wouldn't do that even if they, most composers wouldn't do that even if they, even if they could. So do I think that Shostakovich's music is a reflection of his life and of the reality of, of life under the circumstances in which he lived, which are, you know, obviously quite, quite bad um, living, you know, un under in the Soviet Union, which, you know, again, I, really bad repression and uh, a lot of really terrible things that we don't even, most people don't even know that that yeah. happened. I think it's a reflection of that. But like Marinsky said, uh, you know, he's, he's, the, he's the chronicler of his life and of his reality. But not in explicit terms. Mm. So, you know, I don't think we should be looking on the lookout for secret codes in music. Or I don't think we should just generally, I think we need to figure out a way to, to just generally reckon with Soviet music itself. All right, you're listen, if you want to listen to Popov, don't think of him as a, you know, just a purely a, a, a political result who, of, of political repression, and I'm going to, you know, think of him only in terms of some kind of pre-constructed narrative I want to give about 20th century music like Alex Ross did. Like, just evaluate Popov's music for what it is. Listen to it, you know, without that idea of a narrative. Just listen to Shostakovich's music. Acknowledge that he's a complex person who's neither, like, a, you know, secret American patriot nor 
was he, you know, a slavish disciple of of Stalin? I think that the more complex reality is is more beautiful for the music anyway. And I understand that doesn't sell very well, especially because unfortunately a lot of classical music audiences are older who, you know, spent their lives in the Cold War, early part of their lives in the Cold War, and they so those attitudes are, are appealing, and you know you, you type you, you put that on your programs, advertise your pieces, your, your concert with, you know, decoding secret messages of Shostakovich's symphonies. You know you, you're going to get more people to pay attention to your your concert and show up. But again, I I just think we're doing disservice to our music students, our audience, and. The, the composers themselves. Now, I have listened to Shostakovich, um, basically because of you. <laughs> yeah, and I remember one thing that I came away with was a lot of passages felt sarcastic to me. And I don't know if that was just... Uh, I, I don't. It was one of the first times I've, I've ever heard something that sounds sarcastic, musically speaking. And I don't know if that has anything to do with this discussion at all, but I just think that's novel, mm-hmm. at least to me. And uh Oh yeah, well, you know the whether that that's truly relevant to this or not, I don't know. Um, I will say that you've kind of like come, come up with one of the best adjectives for a lot of his music, and you know I, I spent well, you, you probably remember at least to some extent that I wasn't around that much for it, but I wrote that you know 150 page senior thesis uh, trying to oh, quantify yeah. how his music fits that adjective in by actually looking at the notes themselves. And that was quite an endeavor, but I think that's one of the most immediately striking things about his music. And you're like, but how do you actually quantify that in terms yeah, of the, what actually the, makes it sarcastic? I couldn't, I couldn't like really tell right. you. <laughs> and, and that's, that, that's really the trap too of, uh, of studying him as a, as a, if you're not studying him from the perspective of theory, because you know what it sounds like, but you can't exactly put into the words how it achieves that effect, but it does. Um, I personally think that's less related to this. I mean, I think it's related in that I think it's, he he actually uses, uh, in his 13th symphony, he takes a, a poem by a poet, uh, Yevtushenko, who basically second movement is titled uh, Humor. And he talks about um, how you know, humor is this unkillable, uh, personified, you know, person. All, all these czars and emperors tried to kill him, but, you know, you can't kill humor. And that's, humor is like the only way, you, you know, you, you survive these uh, terrible times. So, I mean, I, I think it's part of his self-defense mechanism, but also he's just a humorous person. Like, even if you listen to his early music, like in the early 1920s, like his first symphony, which is mostly what my... Uh, my paper was about, you know, he, he's very much inspired by this uh, not 1830s, 1840s uh, writer, uh, Gogol, who's a very kind of fantastic, flights of fancy, kind of humorous, sarcastic writer. Uh, so he's kind of, and like he, he was known to just like the entirety of Gogol's works, memorizing, just quote all of them. So I, I think in some ways, that's also what you're seeing with the with the sarcasm in his music. Yeah, that's basically my my version of Soviet 
music being tossed around by different political sides for different polit- political aims. Yeah, and uh, I would I would just have to add that this uh, Cold War sort of uh, lens over things does not end with uh, music sphere. It's surprisingly still in a lot of different uh, different aspects of the way we view the world. It's just people don't know the context, so they don't understand how old Cold War mentalities. I mean, if you think about even when the Cold War ended, right? It wasn't even that long ago. So, <laughs> you know, in the relative history of of history um it wasn't too long ago so this sort of cold war mentality does seep into other 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 things as well um definitely in film too and, and uh it's it's a little overblown and maybe tired get a, can too we get a, can we get a film about a russian who's not like he's you know especially you know can we get like a a, a non-russian dancer who's also a spy <laughs> kind of thing like you know it's attractive deadly spy for soviet russia can we can we avoid that please the russians <laughs> are always the uh the enemies in video games 